great song too, isn't it? Wonderful uh, words, uh, very emotive as well. Uh, as I said earlier, you're not actually going to hear from me today, um, as in speaking was. We're going to hear from Jeff Vanderstelt. And uh, Jeff's the guy who wrote Saturate. Jeff's a guy who set up a, a church in Soma, Tacoma. Uh, he's now moved from there. He's in another place. Uh, but uh, there's a whole movement happening around the world at the moment, which is about uh, missional church and about being on everyday mission and uh, thinking about that and uh, working through that. Uh, and there's lots of people out there talking about that, lots of websites you can go onto and have a look at. Uh, but one that I came across that I thought would be really helpful for us, particularly as we're heading into and thinking about uh, the book Saturate, thinking about saturating our lives and our community with Jesus. Uh, that it'll be good to hear from Jeff himself. Uh, and as you listen to him, you'll hear the stuff if you start to read the book. You'll actually start to hear a lot of the stuff he's talking about in this. Uh, it's an interview with him. They ask him a question and then he answers it. And uh, it is really helpful, I think, anyway, I found it very, very helpful uh, as a launch, in a sense, for what we're going to be thinking about and doing this year and encouraging us in that. Uh, as part of that, I thought uh, it's good for us to hear from God's Word too, because God's Word is where uh, this is all coming from. It's not just my idea, it's not just the elders' idea, it's not just Jeff's idea. Uh, it's something that God's been on about, and God's been on about us being on about Him 24-7, right from the beginning. Uh, and so we're going to be uh, hearing from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through to 12. And Marie's going to read that for us. We don't actually have that on the screen, so you might have to open up the Bible. That'd be scary, won't it? Uh, open up the Bible, have a look uh, at that for us. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, in your Bible, you get to about halfway and a little bit further, you'll find the New Testament. Keep flipping through. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Uh, then you'll find Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, work your way through and you'll get a little bit further and you'll find 1 Thessalonians. Don't go to 2 Thessalonians and it's not 1 or 2 Timothy, it's 1 Thessalonians. I'm just giving you time to find it. <laughs> and if you really get stuck, go to the contents page, look at it, find it and flip over. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Amory's going to read it to, for us and then after she's read it, we'll just watch Jeff. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you had not become so deep, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone 
while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each other, which each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Rereading that and contemplating that as well. Uh, you, those who were here last year will know that that was our theme passage for last year, sharing Christ, uh, sharing our lives and sharing Christ together. Uh, so you'll see how that works out as we hear from Jeff now. Thanks, guys. started way back, um, I'd have to go all the way back to my childhood, because <clears throat> I grew up in a household that was really an open household. My parents created our house in such a way that people could come in and live with us if they needed a place. There was a, I mean, it's fun because my dad would set it up in such a way that kids would actually want to hang out at our house. So we had pool table, video games, pinball machine. Of course, they put in a, ba- a pool in the backyard eventually, and, and a soccer field on the side, and it just was the place everybody wanted to hang, and whenever there'd be a need we'd bring it to the dinner table and my dad would say so should we one of us give up our bedroom one of you boys want to give up your room for a season because someone needs a place to live a husband who got kicked out of his house or you know marriage is not doing well or a kid who is not doing well with his family or somebody just got out of prison and needs a place to land to help get started again and so that was a fairly normative thing for me growing up uh, and I just assumed that's what life was like. And then I got into ministry later on in life and leading student ministry, seeing that that wasn't normative for most of the church. And yet, I uh, got to spend a lot of time training up teenagers to be missionaries in their schools and saw high school, junior high kids really get it and become very effective in ministry. And as a result, I just started to assume like, well, if they can get it, anybody can get it. But then I continued to see the same problem over and over again is that they would graduate into adult church, or they called it big church, and there would no longer be an expectation that people were on mission in everyday life. And after doing that for 14 years in a full-time role, I, I think I came to the conclusion there's something wrong with the church. Because when the church doesn't expect normal, everyday Christians to be on mission in, in the everyday life, then I think we've misunderstood the very nature of what it means to be God's people. <clears throat> so that's how we got. I really got into it and realized I can't just sit and critique. I need to do something about it, which led to starting a church called Soma. And that's what led to us saying, how do we get everybody on the front line of mission? How do we lead a church in such a way that it becomes normative for everybody to believe that they're sent on mission in everyday life? Well, what's really interesting with my parents is I don't know that their, their church ever really affirmed that what they did actually counted. It's kind of interesting. I look back... In fact, my dad and I had a conversation uh, that really was the beginning of Soma in a lot of ways uh, around him saying, now we got we just hired a discipleship pastor at our church. Isn't that crazy? I've been in the church for 40 years and no one ever taught me how to make disciples. And then as I reflected with him on all that he had been doing, I said, you know, the reality, Dad, is that you guys were doing a lot of the work of making disciples. It's just that the church never gave any credit to it. They never said that that's what disciple-making was because you only thought of disciple making as something you do in a classroom or in a one-on-one 
And Dad, you've been doing this for years. But the difference was is no one taught him how to bring Jesus into the middle of all that. And so in a sense, he wasn't making... They, they were doing... They, were in the, they built the context for disciple-making. They were living it out without knowing it. But maybe they weren't as intentional as they could have been. So I, I think I, I had the privilege of growing up in that context. So it became easy for me to see normal everyday life as a context for making disciples. But I didn't know how to input the realities of the gospel into that as well. And, and I don't think my dad and their mom did either because no one trained them to do that. But it was, it was there. It was like when I look back, I see the Lord was building uh, a foundation for me that was really easy for me to build within. We, at Christmas time, every one of us would pick a family to bless and uh, that needed needed some extra care. And we as a family would make everything for them, all their food, cookies, presents. And we, each one of us boys, I grew up in a family of four boys, we'd each, you know, go to the house, go up to the door, knock on the door, and, and then share the gospel with them. And that was the reason. Here's the reason why we want to bless you, because we've been so blessed. And so even in that, my dad was teaching us how to share the gospel through gift-giving. And, um, yeah, it was a, I look back and think there were so many things that, in the way I was brought up that were just infused with kind of a, a picture of the kingdom breaking into the world, though my parents could have never explained it that way. Well, I, I think in my own family, I, one of the things that's been really important for us to recognize is that every aspect of our family's life is disciple-making. So whether it's at the dinner table, um, bedtime routines, out doing house, you know, work on the house, work, walking through the neighborhood, continually I'm reminding my children that all of this is the ministry um, and all of this is the church on mission. And so it's what's been great is my I, I don't know that my kids have a dichotomy of like, well, that's church and this is home, um, but rather this is church. Uh, we as a family on mission together, uh, helping them pray through the friends that they have that don't know Jesus. How are they going to share the gospel with them? Helping them, you know, they, our kids all believe that our household is one of the best places for them to get introduced to Jesus. So bringing their friends to do sleepovers and having game nights. And, you know, they, they know that that's the way that their friends are going to come to know what it looks like to follow Jesus by being in our family with us, by having fun with us. And they don't feel like they have to bring them to church to get that quote-unquote, the church gathered, although they're not opposed to that, but my uh, my kids really see, well, the best way for our, our friends to know about Jesus is for them just to hang out with our family, and so they're eager to invite their friends over. They want to have sleepovers and do all that kind of stuff, and, and at the same time, we talk a lot about how the best place to disciple our children is along the way, and so there's a lot of times where we're stopping and talking about what just happened, and and um, and then not only just talking about what happened, but having my children see that they now could talk about it with somebody else. Uh, so trying to not only do it to them, but teach them how to do it to others. A good example of that be, would be, uh, I pray with my kids at bedtime, each one of them, and ask what they're learning, what, they're, what God's showing them that's new, um, talk about how to, what they need to prayer for, and then I pray for them, and then I ask them now, will you pray for Daddy? And so at times they'll say, what do you need prayer for, Dad? And they'll ask me for prayer, and then they'll pray for me. And, and they're learning how to pray for me in the same way I've been praying for them. And it, it's just a principle of saying whatever I've done with my kids, I, I expect them now to be able to do back. Um, more recently, I'm 
calling them to get ready for um, leading uh, scripture discussion times around the dinner table. So I'm kind of, they haven't done it yet. I'm preparing them. So I've said, because they're still young, but I've said each one of you is going to have a night where you get to do the devotional and you get to pick the, the passage and you're going to lead the family in having discussion around the, the passage we're going to read. So they're, they're now kind of getting excited about which passage they're going to pick. And of course, my son is picking every passage that has his name in it. His name's Caleb. So he's like, we're, I think we're going to be doing a lot in, uh, you know, with Deuteronomy and, and uh, Joshua. So, because <laughs> that's where he wants to, it's like, this is my name. So, but just teaching them how to do it with us instead of us do it all to them. And I think that's a, a key discipleship practice is if you only do to people what you're training and you never ask them to do it back to you or to do it to someone else, you're not really going to train them how to make disciples. I think the biggest failure in the early parts of our church is I went to John twenty twenty one as the Father sent me, so I send you. And then we went back and studied John with the intent of trying to figure out, well, how can we live the incarnational life that Jesus lived? And, and by the, you know, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And it was all do, do, do. And by the time, that's what it was, was do, do. By the time we were done, it was, it was, they were exhausted. They were burnt out. People were fried. And I didn't keep reading because in John 20, 21, if you keep reading, he says, and then he, John records, then Jesus said, he breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And we tried to actually lead our people to go on mission without the Spirit of God and without the, the, the fundamental truths of the gospel being the thing that motivates them most. So their motivation and their power was not Jesus and the Spirit. Their motivation was me trying to inspire them, and their power was their flesh, and they burnt out. And so I think that's that's clearly the biggest mistake we made in leading people on mission. Isn't it crazy that Jesus himself said, I can do nothing on my own? And his entire ministry was a spirit-empowered ministry, and yet the Spirit of God is like one of the least talked about topics in the church, uh, especially even, and unfortunately, I think, in the missional movement and conversation, you hardly ever hear people talk about the Holy Spirit. And yet... If Jesus couldn't do it without the Spirit, who do we think we are? It's interesting, even in the canonical order, you've got Luke, John, Acts. Even though we know Luke and Acts are a companion volume, the, the, when they put together the canon, they felt it important to put John in between Luke and Acts. And I think that's very intentional because John is the one who has the most robust teaching on the Holy Spirit. You know, chapters 4, 5, and 4, 14, 15, 16... And so it's almost the, the I think I think it's the church father's way of saying don't miss this if you're not careful you'll you'll read the narrative of Luke and the narrative of Acts and you'll definitely see the spirit but we want you to get the teaching of the spirit in the middle of it so that we actually see what Jesus was saying about the spirit because clearly the disciples knew Jesus had taught them about the spirit so when it gets to Acts they're expecting it but if you just read Luke and Acts you might just read it historically and not also uh, didactically as a teaching. And so John, right in the middle, I think was very intentional by the fathers who put that together. I think some of the hardest things living on mission are connected to personal ego and comfort. Um, I think if you really are on mission in everyday life, then people are in your stuff. And, and, I, and I think that's a good thing, but I think your flesh fights against that because you don't want people to know you, your brokenness that much. They don't, you don't want them to see you're weaker than 
than they might have thought if they were further away. Um, I think it caused you to daily death, and so you're putting together death the flesh, which is the means to life, but we fight against it. And I think that's the best thing about mission, is it's the best place to be in to have to die. But it's the thing we fight against the most, I think. And it, I mean, it, it reveals your selfishness, it reveals your pride, it reveals your inadequacies. It, it's really discomforting in most cases to be on mission. So I, for me, it's just Jeff gets revealed, the real broken, the old guy. But that's the best part about it too, because then I end up putting that to death more and more. I had had a woman in our missional community once say to me, "I don't, I don't get it. Like, why would people pay to have you speak? I mean, who are you? You know." And what she was saying is, "You're not very impressive. I know you, and you're just a normal, everyday guy that's broken, just like the rest of us. Why would anybody ask you to?" come speak at a big conference. And I love that because what that what what was going on in the place of mission is that I I could not be put on a pedestal. But I think if we're real honest our ego would like to be up a little bit. Early on when we started some uh, one of the things I tried to really impart into our people was consistency in the same place over a long period of time. So go to the same restaurant over and over and over again. Get to know the owner. Get to know the waiter, waitresses. We had this one restaurant that I would go to often. And over time, I got to, of course, know the waiters and waitresses. And, and because I would tip well, they would often fight over who gets to wait on me. So I, whoever was the hostess knew I was going to give a good tip. And so they would put some put me into a table where they knew maybe someone didn't have as many tips that day or whatever. So I kind of became, as it were, like a good news patron because I was bringing something with me that was going to be good for them. This one wait waitress I continued to have request me every time I'd come in. So after a while, I got to know her and got to know her name, got to know her story. And and one day, I because this was fairly normative for me, I'd ask, how, how are you doing? And, um, and she, when I asked that question one day, um, and oftentimes I'd say, you know, I just, you know, I, I, I want to be able to pray for you. If you have anything that you need help with, I want to pray for you. And one day I said, so how are you doing today? And she broke down and started crying. And and she said, the, I said, why are you crying? And she said, because you actually mean it. I said, people ask that question all the time. But you, they don't really mean it. But I know you mean it. Because every time you come in, you ask me about the last thing that you asked me about and how that's going. So I know that you're listening. And, uh, she's, and I said, is that the only reason you're crying? She said, no, I'm also crying because I'm in trouble right now. And I said, what's going on? She said, well, I bit off way more than I can chew. I'm, you know, I'm working this job. I'm working another job. I got into a house that needed a lot of remodeling and repair because I can't afford being in another place. And I, I'm trying to do it all by myself. I got a whole bunch of tiles sitting in my house. I don't know what to do with. I ripped up the floor. There's tile everywhere. And she just starts breaking down on the mess of her house. And I said, it's okay. I got a lot of friends who do tile work. And I got some friends who do construction. And how about if we just come over and help you? And then she just broke down. She's like, what is up? Who are you? And began to tell her why we do what we do. Because of what Jesus has done for us. 
and we brought, brought a bunch of people over and started doing her work and started doing her tile and and next thing you know she's eating with us and a part of our gatherings and I'll never forget the day when she was sitting in a gathering with us and I was serving communion and she came up and she said I want to take and I said why she goes I really get it you guys have showed me this and now I've heard it and I believe it and um this is my expression that it's for me now. There's actually several people that were very significant in my coming to faith. Uh, my parents were certainly a big part of that. Um, however, I'll, a caveat: I was in a I was in a church that primarily called us to give our, li- our I would say to give our afterlife to Jesus. And so when I was eight, I'll often say it this way, when I was eight, I came forward to give my afterlife to Jesus because it was primarily about avoiding hell when you die. And But but God was really gracious in that because uh, right around that time, I also had a Sunday school teacher. His name is Fred Crow, And uh, he has still, to this day, prays for me every day. And so he began to pray for me and... When I was 16, our church had a Bible instruction class. It was a two-year, pretty much like a two-year degree. I mean, when I look at what I did in college, it was the equivalent of that. And at the end of it, you had to preach. You had to get up in front and do a short sermon. So it was like, you had like 15 minutes. It was like a 15-minute sermon. So I did that. And afterwards, Fred, who had been praying for me since I was eight, came up and said, God's called you into the ministry. You're called to be a preacher of the gospel. And I just was, I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard in my life. Because my older brother wanted to be a pastor. And my perspective of pastor was someone who sits in a study and closes themselves off from people all week long, reads, studies, writes, and then gets up on Sunday and preaches a message and then goes back into their study and hides out from people all week. And that seemed like the most horrific thing I could ever imagine doing the rest of my life. <laughs> I had a very adventurous spirit, always wanted to push out into new frontiers, and that just felt like I'd never go anywhere. So I said no and kind of ran the other way. Um, and so if I were to fast forward then, I, I really lived a dual life. I kind of had this party, crazy, wild living life, and then I had this church life of kind of putting on the facade of religion. And it wasn't until I was 21 that I was living in Spain, really a, a pretty crazy, wild, rebellious life. But I had lived in this home with an old woman, a Spanish woman, whose son was the pastor, Baptist pastor of the local church in Spain, this little city called Denia. And uh, every night she prayed for me. And I would come home drunk, and I would come home with women and all this. But over and over again, she would just tell me the next morning I'm just praying for you I'm praying for you and uh, so I think uh, the, the most influential people were Fred praying for me my mom and dad showing me consistent love no matter how many times I walked away and this older woman who just prayed for me and continued to tell me about Jesus every day no matter how many times I came home drunk and um, that's where I surrendered my life to Christ and he got a hold of me was was in Spain uh, old woman who I don't think I mean I don't know if she ever really knew the impact that she had on me I'm sure she didn't because she died shortly after and has never gotten to see what I've gotten to do now other than maybe from a different perspective so 
And I and not only had one other person, there was a guy who was a pastor who would come to every one of my soccer games in high school. And he just, just continued to encourage me and build into me and tell me that Jesus loved me. And I think that was in the back of my mind all through those rebellious years is that this guy kept telling me something about Jesus just by watching my soccer games, which is crazy. He wasn't, I wasn't, didn't even go to his church, but he took the advantage of that moment every time I'd play soccer to remind me of Christ. If, if Jesus is going to show up in the form of a little baby, and he's going to show up in a place that doesn't get recognized, then I think we should pay attention to the fact that that's probably how he's going to show up in everyday life. And so it can be at a restaurant by just tipping a waiter or a waitress. It can be an older woman who prays for a rebellious kid. You know, it can be um, a pastor that watches you play soccer and, you know, encourages you at the end of the game. I mean, those things are the things that everybody can do. It can be a meal that you make. It can be uh, you creating your home as a really wonderful place for your kids to bring their friends. And they love to hang out. It can be getting down and playing sports with your kids' friends. I mean, it's, it's all those moments. And I think when, when Christians embrace that and, and really embody the gospel in those moments, that's when I think our cities are going to change. But if we only think it's going to be from the platform where only a few get to kind of preach to the many, then the majority of Christians will still think they're not in the game.